What's good, everyone? This is Jose Nino, the host of El Nino Speaks. I'm here today with a pair of interesting guests, Merrick and Bogbeef of the Good Old Boys podcast. I've had the pleasure of listening to their show for a while over the past year or so, and then I've been consistently impressed by the content they drop. And I think the show is very unique in how you really can't pigeonhole them ideologically, which I actually think is a good thing these days because we often are just accustomed to typical left or right wing takes and not anything else that kind of like pushes the envelope in other regards. So just to give the listeners an idea of where you guys more or less stand politically, how did you guys come to arrive at your political beliefs? Yeah. So, okay. So how we came to, so I would say the main way, like uh, uh, the number one way that we came to sort of talk and think about politics and the way that we do is talking to each other. So over the years we have had different friends and uh, we would just always debate, always talk about politics, had an interest in, in this kind of thing. And I've always had a, this, this, interest in the, in a kind of like a, a dispassionate analysis type thing that I think everyone must do that to some level, but I especially like that. I mean, so, so of course, what generally happens when me and Merrick do a show, we talk about things like that. We sort of do like poli sci. In other words, it's not like activism or we don't like preach or anything. We just say, this is how this works. This is how that works. And, but of course, when we do weekly news, of course, we of course we ha- we have our own opinions about things, you know. But uh, there's that. Yeah, I would say we would we used to talk about politics. When he says like talk to each other, like we would talk to each other at length about political stuff, like on like a daily basis, right? It was kind of a funny running like meme that Bog Beef would just send me these gigantic walls of text, you know, and uh, the next morning I would see just like a novel he had written about a subject and we did, we would mull it over. I think that was really the, that's really the best way to talk about politics. However, I noticed that when it came to like the general population after around 2012, people stopped being as interested in discussing politics in that way. And it really became a lot more sectarian I don't remember people that we would talk to getting hard feelings about hot button political topics very often until about, I guess, 10 years ago, at which point it felt like you kind of had to choose a team and you were, and if you had the wrong opinions, you were going to be on that team forever. Yeah, that's actually a pretty interesting observation because that's more or less when you saw the great awakening in its gestational phase and where really like the polarization politics was kicked into overdrive. Now, one thing that I've picked up on from listening to your show is how you guys like more or less like supported Bernie Sanders in the 2016 campaign. Though one of like the most interesting things I've noticed how his campaign changed significantly like in its like focus from 2016 to 2020, namely how... 2016 was kind of like more class-based, class reductionist, if you will. But 2020, it really did seem that it took like a significantly woke turn. Would you say that this like woke turn contributed 
to its like much quicker demise in 2020? Well, I would say now, of course, the people we we associate with generally, you know, you, you when you run a show like like we do, you know, you interview people and stuff, and like the dream scenario for like 2016 for me, where I would have been very happy would be would have been a Bernie Sanders running under his policies that he supported when he was a um what was it Del what, Delaware what, what no Vermont senator when he was a Vermont senator versus a Donald Trump you know there was this moment where both characters were questioning the empire saying immigration affects wages guns are good I don't know if that ever happened at the same time but both these guys were that at one time and that's I definitely would have preferred that I would have felt like presidential debates and everything would have been really great. Of course, that couldn't have happened. But I I don't, I I would have to check, but I really don't, I don't think we ever supported Bernie Sanders outright as he should be the president of the United States. Well, I, you weren't around on Twitter at that time, were you? Like the 2015, no. 2016? Yeah, like I was. And like, that was the, like on in political Twitter, that was the only question, like whether you supported uh, Bernard Sanders or Hillary Clinton. And like, that wasn't really a hard choice. Like, you know, she's pretty, like the embodiment of evil. It, it, it wasn't a difficult choice. Yes. <laughs> There's a funny, like, uh, like parting of the ways I noticed to happen during this, during the end of like the end stages of the election is that Trump's 2016 campaign was extremely, focused on like labor and trade like his last his last political ad, ad, ad campaign you should google it sometime just google like trump's final 2016 ad it was purely about immigration as it applied to to trade and like you know blue collar work it, there, it was it was almost unbelievable for a republican at that time you just didn't see it happening and it seemed to me after that election that like the, there really wasn't a question any anymore about like whether or not politics had fundamentally changed, like or at least like the the Trump strategy, like political strategy, had changed the Democrat and Republican archetypes. But not everybody got on board with that, and and, and I think that kind of led to what Jose was referencing. Like Sanders went hard woke. Like his his twenty twenty campaign was just completely different than his twenty sixteen one. He he brought in. I think he brought in a lot of progressive consultants and he kind of hit on their hot button issues rather than the like labor wages healthcare platform they'd around the first time and that's part of the reason why he got trounced but it's also the reason why if if you pay attention to you know social media and people who talk about politics there are a lot of dissident bernard brothers today who are like flirting with people like trump desantis whatever with with the new right yeah so if there were Democrats running around like right now saying that um, immigration affects wages, I, I don't know if I would say too many bad things about them. If there were Democrats running around saying that NAFTA was a mistake, if gun rights are sacred, I don't know if I would be talking smack about them. And this comes up a lot with these with populism, right? Because populism started, the Democratic Party began with like populism in the United States is a tradition that starts with Andrew Jackson. He invented this. And yep. that tradition lasted, I think it really, the fight, like, it was like, so any MAGA guy that lives in the Southeast, uh, his granddad was a Democrat because of this. And if you look at the 
So there was a little bit of this. There was a little bit of that still left. The final nail in the coffin, I think, for that existing in the Democratic Party was Jim Webb endorsing <laughs> Trump in an election where he ran as a Democrat at first. And, you know, he loses at the end. He's just like, at the end of him saying, like, I'm not going to endorse the Democrat. He never, like, put out an official statement that he, that he supported Trump. But it was obvious that populism was over in the Democratic Party. Yeah, Jim Webb is a really intriguing figure. He's definitely a, that, like, Scots-Irish um, archetype. And he represents, like, a, a basically a different constituency now that doesn't really form part of the Democrats' base. And I think, like, really, when you look at, like, the Bernie Sanders campaign from 2016 to 2020, and broadly speaking, the Democrat ecosystem, there's just, like, a different constituency involved that they cater to. And as a result, you see somewhat of, like, a realignment of interests and coalitions. Yeah. You know, Bernie Sanders was, it's not really populist as such, but he was something of a he had a direct support base there in Vermont that had pretty populist interests, i.e., I believe there was a lot of union guys and stuff, but they had guns, so they wanted to keep their guns and all that stuff. And so when he needed their votes to keep his job, that's what his views were. This is kind of part of the patronage thing. And when, you, when he wanted to uh, move up, he didn't need those people anymore. Yeah, one thing that I tell a lot of right-wingers as well about Bernie Sanders is that, especially when I was like really involved in gun lobbying, is that he actually voted against the passage of NICS, the federal background check system like in the 90s. And he also actually like received an endorsement from the NRA against when he was squaring off against a Republican challenger when he was running for Congress. And you do see actually as well, I've noticed in several states when I was involved in helping pass constitutional carry, there was several Democrats actually that crossed over, especially like these blue dog union hard hat types to pass this legislation in states like Missouri and West Virginia and even Texas where I'm at. Interestingly enough, most of the Democrats that crossed over to pass constitutional carry or South Texas Hispanics as well. So you do see like some remnants of this old democratic base, but a lot of them are just going extinct and just moving over to the Republican party. In fact, I know for one, one of the South Texas Hispanics that voted for constitutional carry, he just switched to the Republican party because the fact of the matter is the Republican Party in its current iteration, while it's not like fully populist, is more populist relative to the modern day Democratic Party, which at a glance seems to serve the interests of like a professional managerial class like constituency. Well, it's a <laughs> it's a coalition of those people and I guess part of what you would, would have in the past called the underclass, right? It gets the the upper middle and the bottom kind of in a this weird symbiotic political relationship. And like that was the reason the reason that Sanders campaign in 2016 was so strange was that he kind of maybe because he's an old guy, he kind of reached back in the bag and, and brought out like these extremely basic New Deal kind of uh, ideas that would appeal to like the working class constituents 
that the Democratic Party had back in the 90s. And it was kind of like the last gasp of the old Democratic Party. And I think that Clinton winning solidified the control of the, of the professional managerial class. And like, and that's part of the reason for Sanders' turn in 2020. Like, I'm sure his consultants told him, and, and actually when it came to winning the Democratic Party primary, they might have been correct that like that you have to make these people happy instead of the people that you were trying to make happy. Because like, in, in some ways you could say that his 2016 primary, like the, the problem was he ran a great general election campaign, but winning the presidency of the United States and winning the party primary aren't the same thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, all those things where I was saying nice about Democrats, so people get wigged out about that. It's like, yeah, it's not like that anymore. I got it. You know, you know, people get very passionate about this stuff. Because, I mean, you go back to the Civil War times, you know, I'm a Southerner, and the Republicans are really, I really don't like them, you know. But the funniest <laughs> part of this, of this whole, of the Bernie Sanders thing that was like, yeah, this is how the game has changed now was when, so Bernie Sanders starts running and he's he's got a, a fair amount of support. So like all, you know, all the celebrities that want to be like a little bit on the cutting edge, like Susan Sarandon stuff are supporting him. He's getting tons of money. Things are looking great. And his staffers unionize against him, which, uh, and so. <laughs> yeah, that was funny, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the, like, maybe not everybody knows how like union like the basics of how it works, but like they do people on, on the left do because the, there's union leaders all over the place. So like when Bernie Sanders is the, uh, in that relationship, like he's the capitalist and they're the workers they're going to take. Uh, and they're sort of like, no, we're not going to work unless we get like all these things. That was like, that said so many things about like a, their loyalty B it's like, you realize like, so if this guy wins and you're out there, busting your hump for like you you should want no money you don't need any money to do that because if this guy wins now you're friends with the most powerful man in the world like what are you doing it doesn't make sense under the old stuff but now this makes perfect sense this is exactly how everything works now yeah it was a, it was a shakedown it was a demand for it was a demand for free money because like as as a lot of people pointed out during that 2020 primary when that happens like the, the whole point of forming a union is because you think that your boss is stealing your your surplus labor value and you're you're demanding a fair share. Like what on a political campaign, like what profits are we talking about? Are you talking about political donations? You're demanding your cut of Bernard Sanders' political donations? Like that's weird. The, ma the management would be the the you know the nurses and the cashiers who are sending in a, a sixteen dollar political donation, right? Yeah, that's the greatest point. That they're really unionizing against all these hapless people. They're male that, that are their support. They're, they're unionized against the people, which is you know that's what public employee unions all all are. But uh, God, that moment. I want to encase that moment and lose sight <laughs> and just keep it forever. People need to people need to understand like like how like everything that was going on with that union politics is pretty weird because like it's definitely changed now because. Back then, it to me, this is just from like my bird's eye view, is that it was like mostly just centered around economics and like pay over pay issues. But now, it appears to me that it's become like really short term extractions or just about like policing so called bad behavior in the workforce and stuff that I think 
basically benefits a lot of this like weird HR hall monitor class. It doesn't really address like fundamental issues of labor. Now, would you say like this realignment that you're seeing in like American politics is mostly centered around labor issues, like namely like trade, immigration, and just like outsourcing as well? Or are there other issues that are driving these changes? No, I think that's part of what Bog Beef was getting at when we're talking about that the dream would have been Sanders versus Trump in 2016, because like then then it really would have probably done that. But I think that unfortunately, like oh, I should say immigration is still a big issue. But I, I think now it's kind of like my suspicion is in the next election, it'll be kind of a repeat of what we saw here in Virginia and in, in our state level elections that we just had, which is that like it's going to be like the managerial class and how much power they're allowed to accrue and how what level of management of your personal life they should be allowed to have. And also, obviously, like with inflation, it's going to be probably more directed around like economic policy at like a federal level rather than focusing on minimum wage again. I don't have anything to back that up. That's just my suspicion because like I said, our our Virginia election kind of went in the direction of there were people were angry about the way the school system was being run. Yeah. They were angry about the general direction things have taken politically here. I have a bad feeling we're going to get away from these like uh, bread and butter issues going forward. Yeah. So this is a funny question because the thing about like the way I feel about like, let's say immigration or trade. And what I mean by trade is that um, if you go ask an economist right now, if you ask them, like, if the United States should export more finished goods than it should import. So in other words, if we import things, we should import like raw steel or whatever. And then we turn it into finished goods and we send it out the rest of the world and we get, and should we do that? They say, well, no, this has been a, this is a thing called mercantilism and it's been discredited. <laughs> uh, but that, that thing, so there's that. And there's also this immigration, basically everything to come with NAFTA, like, is it a huge issue? Well, I mean, it would be if I like if I've seen any Western country be able to do anything about it. So, like in the meantime, like I would do anything for someone to even be able to attempt this kind of thing. But like until I see any Western country like successfully do it, or what am I, like like if I if I try to get hyped about this, like well, every day is going to be a bad day because guess what? It's not it's not happening. Yeah, it was a huge part of Trump's platform in 2016, and he did slow down the rate of of like illegal immigration. But I don't think that he put a huge dent into it, and we certainly didn't have any fundamental change. As soon as as soon as the you know the other guy got in, there was a rush at the border again. You write a bill, it goes through 50 million judges. Then the people that execute it, they're not doing it. And then there's teams and teams of people that are being funded by NGOs on the other side of the border, giving them exactly what they need. Yeah, to- I was going to say NGOs. Yeah, this is a much, yeah, you're, you're, you're saying, you're actually phrasing this the proper way. This is what I was trying to say before. I think the big issues going forward is going to be like elected representatives and people versus bureaucratic systems. Yeah. That's, that was what. Like what was lurking in the background of of our governor election, and it's what's going. To, we're going to. I know that for sure we're going to see that in twenty twenty two and twenty four. Just simply because, like, look at these bureaucracies are going buck wild with with their bat flu rules. And as I think everybody knows, if you pay attention to American politics, like 
the real legislators are the courts at this point. And so unless you unless if as a populist, unless you have some kind of plan to deal with that, you're not going to accomplish anything. Yeah, I don't mean this in the Marxist sense, but what I would say is that like the real battle now is class war. And basically, <laughs> um, the Democrats, you have these ethnic machines, you have the whatever you want to call professional managerial class, basically the most powerful members of which would be university employees and NGO employees, all the way down to all these diversity inclusion people. And, and they're like, so they have a real problem, right? Because they've given too many people like the education to get these jobs. So whenever like a new hiring comes up at a university or for a diversity manager, they get like 500 applicants. And so they desperately need more fake jobs for these people. That's kind of a problem for them that can be exploited. And then on the other side, you have basically the kulaks, which is, I've seen a lot of different ways to phrase it. One of the great ways to phrase it is basically people who don't benefit from immigration and international trade. Uh, well, that's not the right way to put it, but essentially like, well, it's the kulaks. It, it, it's a lot of different. I, I have to look up If you don't benefit from globalism... <laughs> yes, <black>. basically the chuds. <laughs> well, but yeah. it's not—it's it, not just ch- yeah. Uh, chuds are like, are, are like obviously we're chuds, and chuds are a big part of this. But not, but not only like, and you'll see these people like to attack the chuds and everybody else. Like, oh, you guys are just like you, uh, you know, used car dealers. You, you know, rich kulak people that you know, blah blah blah. But like, I think it, when you get down to the meat of it, it's if you don't benefit from from globalism, then. You're on the outs with, yeah. with this political party, with not just a political party, with the the, the ruling coalition. The I don't even know what you would call it because it's really another it's way. Thing. Another way to phrase it, and I don't want to filibuster here, but this is a good a good thing. So uh, I think what Tinksark says is the productive classes, and Ooh, yeah. I talk to is like if there is a person that is left wing, is it don't matter how left wing they are, and they have good manners. I will talk to them. I want to know what they, I don't know. I want to know what's going on with them. And Merrick saw, I talked to a guy that was like a, just like a literal card carrying communist. He's like a, some kind of a union boss, not like a boss, but he's some kind of guy in a union in construction or, or something like that. He, he's a real union boss, but he's one of the, but uh, he, he's not like a, um, a teacher's union or something. It's like guys doing real work. And, we were watching, there was Republicans debate the concept, the thing about unions. And I remember I asked him, I said, I said, take a look at this. I was like, what do you, like, what do you think would happen if a Republican, obviously they could never negotiate with the unions for, for the reasons I'm getting to. But I said, what, what do you think would happen if they made just sort of like any kind of appeals directly to the union workers? He said, you know what? I think they would have a lot more success than you, than you know. He says, because they don't really do anything for us. And why don't they do anything for them? It's for the same reason as every other institution in the West. The left has to fill any kind of institution that gets a budget full of these people, these useless people. They have to do it. And so you go to a union leadership, there's no, now there's, there's exceptions, of course, like electricians or like union workers that like UPS and stuff are guys who used to drive the trucks. But Anything else, it's just going to be full of these people that have these huge degrees that are useless. 
Yeah, speaking of Tink Zorg, I've listened to him a lot on your show and other podcasts. I remember one quote he said that I that really stuck out to me. He said something to the effect that scratch a culture war issue and you'll find a jobs program. And that to me broadly like summarizes a lot of how like the left operates these days in that we do live like in this critarchy of of sorts where we're basically ruled by judges and administrators and you can see this how, how glorified like say like somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was and how these people like occupy much more importance than like a um, amongst like the chattering classes than say like a politician that has a legislative record <laughs> that you could point to where they do stuff or don't do stuff and this is very different because it changes kind of like the concept of like sovereignty and how policymaking is done because it's almost like these politicians now are just becoming just like useless inputs while a lot of like the big stuff being done as far as policymaking is concerned is being conducted by these so-called experts or bureaucrats in smoke-filled rooms. Everyone's allergic to responsibility. If you've worked in gun politics, I'm sure you've seen, uh, maybe, I'm, I'm curious, politicians don't want to be the one to have anything, if they can, they will get out of doing anti-gun stuff by trying to get the ATF to do it, to get an unelected yes. bureaucrat. Yeah, I can, yes, that's true. Yeah, I'd actually take it a step further. This is kind of inside baseball, but based on my experience in lobbying, when you have like, say, like a Republican that's going to, quote unquote, like sell you out on the issue, they'll try to kill your legislation, your program legislation behind the scenes through a lot of horse trading and other backdoor negotiations with Democrats so that they don't have that blemish on their record or they outsource it to the bureaucracy. But because now I think gun politics has changed and this is how much more advanced it's become in that a lot of these grassroots lobbies have gotten really good at primarying bad Republicans for their bad records. They've been able to tie their bad legislative behavior to the election season and whack them really hard. Even if they don't beat them in the primaries, they're able to kind of tarnish their image and make them sweat a little. So these politicians have had to get a bit more creative when it comes to killing legislation, but all things being equal, a lot of Democrats, especially in these like swing states, they would prefer to just outsource the issue to the ATF to do that. And that's why you're seeing in response to this, the rise of the sanctuary movements and these nullification movements, which I've argued nullification is as American as apple pie. You can go to like the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions to see how embedded that is in American history. But yeah, there is like a tendency of outsourcing to bureaucracy and just doing away with like a traditional legislative function. It's like technocracy is, is as anti-democratic as it gets. And it's hilarious because these same people just flap their gums about how we have to protect our democratic values and our sacred democracy. Yeah, and this this goes back to what populism means. Populism was, and they what, what do they say bad about the populace? They say that they they got rid of qualified bureaucrats and replaced them with what they call cronies. <laughs> Which, uh, okay, if he's a crony of the guy elected, that that's what I want, you know? When does that successfully happen? Like, uh, that's kind of what they accuse populists of, of wanting to do. But at the moment, they're definitely not hurting, right? Like, the the gov- like the gov- like the actual work of government is done by these unelected and permanent bureaucrats. You can't get rid of them even if you want to. Uh, Trump learned that the hard way after he won his Big election. Time. 
And I, I, I think that like it, too, if if you think back in American history, you have these characters like uh, I guess like Henry Clay, or you know Henry Cabot Lodge, like these people who were who were just titans in the legislature, right? Like they had immense power. They could they could sink they could sink a president. They could, they crafted important legislation for their parties. Like we we still have a few of these. Like like I would say Pelosi has done quite well for for herself, right? She's like she's been a pretty big uh, big yeah. dealer in the Democratic Party. Speaking, yes. But you're never gonna you're, ne- you're you're never gonna see the likes of guys like Clay or Lodge again until you defang these bureaucracies because like all the power was shifted away from from the legislature to to these these entities that that net they. They're immortal when it comes to the like political formula. Like they 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 don't care about elections. Like they're going to be here. Uh, we had we had a guy on our podcast, uh, Andrew Kloster, who who worked with the bureau, the like the OPM bureau, and he said like they have a little saying that like essentially we're going to be here when you're gone. So like yeah, you might have won the election, the, the people might have voted for you, but but I'm I mean as an administrator, I'm always going to be here, and so you you can't really you can't really have powerful people elected to an office as long as you as long as like appointees to courts and like even cabinet even like uh even executive bureaucracies don't answer to the executive like that's what's gonna that's what's gonna keep power because you know power does not like to be identified power doesn't like to be subjected to the whims of the public and so as long as long as we're we're really stuck in this rut for a long time unless someone comes up with a plan to like retake that power from them. And I have no, I have no idea how you would do that and I haven't really I haven't seen very many politicians who even approach this issue with like a plan that seems like it would make sense. Like there are a few who are coming out now. Like I uh you know Vance running in Ohio every once in a while we'll like just peel off these extremely base takes about how we should defund, you know, universities or whatever. Like that, that's a plan. Like if you take away their source of income, like that could actually work. Yeah. It's going back to like second and like amendment politics, because that was basically what I was like thrusted into. You will see occasionally at the state level, definitely not federal. There is like a difference. I think at the state level with, a lot of Republicans, especially in like really blood red states, especially the states that have passed like legislation, like say constitutional carry, you'll hear them start actually talking about nullifying federal laws or even like getting people elected to Congress that will like actually like try to defund the ATF. And I mean, a lot of the circles, the talk about abolishing the ATF has been a meme, but it was always just like kind of confined to the internet. But now it's kind of it's become slightly more mainstream, but the thing is like the GOP, like at its core, and I've been involved in GOP politics since like 07, because I got into this mostly because of like Ron Paul and Pat Buchanan. And basically like I tell a lot of people this, that especially in GOP politics, the enemies, your primary enemies are not like Democrats or even like the radical like left Democrats or like the squad or whatever. It's basically the chamber of commerce types. Those are like the first like big bosses you have to get before you're going to like go toe to toe with a lot of like these big city liberals and whatnot. And a lot of times this was just like a total headache. Cause I can say this having been involved in like Texas, like state level politics for over a decade, that it was a total hassle to get constitutional carry passed. It took us 10 years and a lot of banging our heads on the wall and just 
smacking around. A lot of politicians have flaked on us, but eventually we got it because we were able to just keep pushing and we identified like our constituency because there is kind of like a tendency, I think, across like a lot of the political spectrum, especially like in the more quote unquote radical sides of kind of abstracting their politics and not thinking in terms of like the constituencies like they serve and whatnot, because really what it boils down to like a lot of politics is like you want to identify a constituency and figure out what their problems are and then like offer those solutions in terms of public policy. And I've noticed a lot of movements from like the left to say pretty like hard libertarian right people tend to not get that, which is like, I think is a, is a fundamental of like basic politics. Nobody yeah, gets I, that. Nobody gets that. That's the, that's like the most important thing. Sorry, go ahead, Merrick. Well, like, wh- that's a good question. Why didn't Trump defund the ATF when he came into office? He had control of both the, they had control of the, the House and the Senate and the presidency. They could have like passed a budget that, gutted the ATF. Like you could do that if, if in 2024, the same thing happens, you could do that. There's, there will be nothing stop. I don't think there's anything stopping them from doing that. This could be a done deal, but it, no one ever even tries it. And like that kind of answers the question for itself. But now of course the other side does seem to at least in some way understand this because they spent a large part of 2020 threatening to, and sometimes actually going through with defunding, parts of the government that they don't like, you know, the police, like police departments, uh, border patrol, like they, they, they straight up, they actually did that. Now, of course, a lot of it bit them in the ass because there are some things that, you know, you actually need for a functioning society. And like a police force is one of them, but you know, a, a lot of these cities <laughs> yeah. went through with this. So they're not afraid to pull the trigger on that. But for some reason, the Republican party seems to be. The thing about defund the police and uh, what do they else they want to defund? Uh, well, anyways, the thing about defund the police that, like, if you want, this may not be a topic you want to dispassionately analyze. But if you do dispassionately analyze it, you need to understand that it's good politics in the basics. Now, uh, a better example, because the police thing is so, the results thing are, are so there. So, one of the the, the more clear ones is uh, the Democrats allocated money for uh, black farmers. So if you're able to take money from everyone and give it to the people that support you, you're probably doing very well. You're going to do well in politics. Most of the examples will make people sick, but this is how you need to think. And the thing about this is this is kind of self-regulated, right? So the things that like you can get away with are generally the things that don't make people upset so much. Uh, one of the things we, you were talking about, these super legislators, you know, one one that people forget about is uh, not Huey Long, but his son, Russell. Russell was like a monster, in, and he was a senator for 40 years, and he retired with a 75% approval rating. Okay, how do you do that? Well, the money he would, he would, he would send to would be like old people and stuff like that, things that were like, I'm sure he's doing politics. However, like, uh, you know, people like, oh, that's fine. Uh, as you see now, there are a lot of people that, uh, you know, it, it could be very well possible for someone that like lives in New York or something that like, it would be very difficult for a Republican to like help them at all. Uh, I'm not saying that for sure, but uh, you know what I mean? Because of like things like salt and stuff like this, blah, blah, blah. However, the police thing, it's like, yeah, I get it. But uh, I, I need the police. This is where the the party and the constituents become become different. You know, 
It's it's kind of like let's say you you like a politician, and he go gets a, gets a ton of money from a uh, corporate interest that's uh, opposed to yours. Well, yeah, your politician got more powerful, but uh, may not necessarily be good. But all I'm saying is that kind of stuff. Like it's it sounds dirty to talk about, but it is kind of self regulating. But you have to be willing to use it, and few few are very few are. To give a slight example, uh, we talk about Clyburn a lot. And uh, so Clyburn is a Democrat. He's, uh, you know, he's the uh, House Majority Whip. So he's like, um, he's like any other politician. However, he's not as well. He has a direct relationship with a lot of older black people in his district. They do what he says. He directly communicates to them what he does for them. And you will see this gives him magic powers. So he can do, you know, the, the famous Trump quote is that I could shoot someone on Main, on uh, you know, Madison Avenue and, uh, no, and, and it would be fine. Well, you will see that Jim Clyburn makes, they'll say, this is a gaffe. You can't say that. That's not, a, you know, that's not part of it. Well, it doesn't matter because he has a direct relationship with constituents, <laughs> that people that literally vote for him. And that puts you into a different, uh, a different mode of politics. No, yeah, when I was going... Back to about like dirty politics, I I have noticed this trend among a lot of like these like liberal commentariat class types where they would just always like trash machine politics in a lot of like boss tweed style politics. And it's actually kind of funny because a lot of the old right figures and even like libertarian figures like Murray Rothbard, they actually kind of defended that style of politics, even though it might be, yeah, it's like not exactly dirty. It is like preferable to have like, say like a local back scratcher on your side than some faceless bureaucrat in DC that political opinions are informed by these really just like detached, like elite individuals that do not care for people that are living in the hinterland. Like I, I always prefer that. I'm a localist at heart, so I have a bias towards local politics, even with like all its like blemishes, like warts and blemishes that over like DC style type politics. Now, one thing I think that got me thinking when you guys were talking about like the like just like the ATF or whatever, why Republicans couldn't do that. One thing I've learned to appreciate working in politics previously is just like the like the interfactional conflicts that you'll see within parties because you do see these type of factions emerge whenever a certain political conflict kicks off. Like if you want to like really reduce the size of the administrative state, which includes also the ATF, by the way, you do see like a faction of more kind of like libertarian-ish populist, like folk libertarian types squaring off with more of your establishment types. And this is not just exclusive to the right. You do see this on the left. And, I, and I've like noticed this just like on Twitter where you will see even a lot of like tone policing of like leftist behavior over just stuff regarding like immigration or whatever. And what do you think are like certain issues that could get you like canceled on the left today that are pretty prominent in those spaces? Like I have noticed that like, for example, the case of Angela Nagel, she got a lot of heat for going against open borders would you say that like immigration is probably like one of the biggest issues that the left will basically kick people out of its circles over oh yeah basically i mean the way i think about this is that um something that happened online is that used to you could talk about anything online and then uh later on you couldn't 
And like, what, like, what are the rules about how you can, like, what, like, what do companies use to determine what is wrong? Well, they basically use the Civil Rights Act. So, if you make a party and you basically have the Civil Rights Act in your hand, you can use that because it's uh, like you have constitution. You're wielding constitutional law. Like I don't know what people know, but uh, gender identity is is now a protected class by the United States Constitution. So you can like you can go to war with that. You can. You may even win. However, they hold that in their hand. But that's not exactly immigration because the immigration thing is much bigger. You go ahead, Mark. Oh, I was I was waiting for you. I, I was just going to drop a hot take. It's possible that immigration will become less. Like up until very recently, I would agree. Yes, immigration was the the third rail. You could not touch that and be a member in good standing of like any progressive movement. You really weren't allowed to say much about uh, uh, much about it on the conservative side either, other than like the typical George W. Bush, like, ah, oh, yeah, we, we, we love our, you know, we, we, we love our Latin immigrants. They're, they're future conservatives. But however, things are, there, there's some changes happening right now that could, and I'm not saying this will happen, but could make this a far less important issue. Like for one, like if we have an actual huge economic calamity in the near future, uh, even they might sour on, the the dream of unrestricted immigration, at which point, and also very it, it obviously, doesn't, it doesn't matter at that point. There's no surplus for them for immigrants to take, right? Right, and and also like they're kind of finding out that like some of the people who are coming to the United States that the progressive coalition counted on to to stay part of like ethnic voting blocks, they're not doing that. They're they're actually assimilating into American culture, and some some of them are becoming like. I don't want to say just Republicans because it's more than that, but like some of them are just becoming like a chuds. They're not, they're, 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 they're voting and thinking like, like right, like American working class people rather than an ethnic voting, voting block, which makes them useless to the progressive coalition politically. Yep. So I think Bog Beef touched on what I think could be the big touchdown. Like the, he talked about, you know, the gender politics and uh, they're doing their, their level best to make sure that this, is completely entwined with like the CRA because like that that's a perfect thing for them. It's a it's a permanent castus belly on like all of society. Like transsexual people are like what 0.05 percent of the population. But you can you but we we have to over we have to change the entire country. We have to change everything, you know, in the world to accommodate this. And like that's not because. They love those people. It's because, like, if you if, if like there's this tiny group of people that that you're acting on behalf of, you can rearrange everything. You can change whatever you want. You can remake the entire country, the entire world, into what you into what you like. And you're doing it with the excuse of, well, hey, we're just trying to help the most vulnerable people on the planet. Yeah, this stuff gets complicated. And I would say that there are people that kind of specialize in like watching the left and they have better answers on like the inside rules because uh, there's exceptions to all of this. Like uh, one thing is that um, depending on who you are, there are certain people that are on the, on the left, even the far left that are able to be like a, a escape valve. And they say things that, that general left people are not allowed to say because it's all these kind of complicated dynamics, it's just uh, a thing that happens. And uh, but that, you, you need people like there are certain people that specialize in that. The other thing about immigration, it's kind of 
the immigration thing, it's not like like America is is not going to be an ethno state like ever. And so, yes, you can, and this is what people say. They're like, well, there's, you know, less immigrant. Like if there's with the economy, the way it is, all these business shut down, less people want to come here. It's like, yeah, well, that's kind of like against the point. Like if you, it's like, well, I don't even want to come there because there isn't any economic surplus. Uh, it's like, well, you know, that that's that that's no good. And then with the, the last thing about the, the gender thing, you can see this, like, there are real issues behind everything, but there's also the party stuff and the power stuff and the and the 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 sort of dirty patron stuff that that sort of really motors it. Like the way you can see this is two things I think. Uh, so one thing is that the woman that did wrote the 1619 project, she said there's black and there's politically black, and everyone knows what she means. She's basically like, okay, if if you happen to be black and you're not like a Democrat activist, well you're not really black to me because black to me is able to use essentially the civil rights act and, and, uh, uh, all these kinds of things like for my political party. So if you're not that, well, uh, you know, if you're Charles Barkley or something, well, I, I guess you happen to be an African American, but like that's, that's useless. You're useless to me. So I don't even care. Uh, the other one they have is, um, if you look up uh, their, all the their comments they have about, and I don't really know this person, but you can look at them and you can see it's very funny. There's like, there's been transgender people for like, that have done the same things that like 30 years and stuff. But like that has nothing to do with like this current political thing. So the, you can find these amazing diatribes about like, uh, they'll say like Buck Angel, who's like a famous transgender person that was like been one for a while. Like Buck Angel is a transphobe. They're a bad person. The same thing as it's politically black. It's just like, if you're not, if you're not here to be a Democrat activist, well, that's not the point, you know? The sexual identity stuff is a wedge. And, and I, I, I don't know that this is the case because I think there are a lot of other factors involved, but like, but there's, there's one serious advantage to this. You can't really, uh, Rachel Dolezal aside, you can't pretend to be black. You can't tomorrow announce that you're black. Like Nicole Hannah-Jones is not going to allow that. You can't announce that, like, actually, I'm a Latinx person of color. You, you can't really do that. However, tomorrow you could announce that you're a woman. You, know, you could, you could, you could announce that you're, but and, and that they won't even have to go that far. Now, like there are people who announce that they're the Q word. I don't know if you're allowed to say that without being censored. You, you just say you're that. And it doesn't really have a meaning other than, well, now I get this. It just means head. Democrat. Well, <laughs> yeah, but, but like, uh, <laughs> because of the civil rights legislation, uh, it, it could mean that you get sent to the front of the line for jobs and stuff like that, right? Like, you, it, you could you could get a material benefit from from being this. You you be instantly become part of a political machine. It's not an ethnic machine. It's like a a sexual machine, which actually sounds really erotic. <laughs> now I think about it. But yeah, you, you guys know what I was getting <laughs> yeah. at, right? Like this is something. This is something that what like that like white. I don't even like saying PMC, but like white PMCs could suddenly graduate and into into somebody who's protected under uh, under like this uh, as a protected class. Right? I would I would like to talk about the Latin thing. I'm curious what you would say, but it seems like what they thought. So we have a lot of different people that have come to the United States, and they've had different trajectories. Now the trajectory with what we call white people, people from Europe, and what white really meant in colonial times was Christian. This is why. Armenian was considered white and Chechen wasn't because this is kind of a, a, this big mass culture thing. You would come here, you first generation, you would still speak the old language. 
second generation, you're going to speak, you're going to speak both. You're going to do organized crime. You're going to uh, uh, do well in things like boxing and stuff like that. And then you're going to become American, which as you've seen, so like we, like the Chud Alliance now includes like Italians and stuff. Now, what they, that's not been the trajectory for say like Ethiopians or even even Asians are still considered part of the uh, uh, the Democrat, um, uh, whatever their their ethnic coalition. But although that you know that that's that's wavering. Oh, but yeah, they're getting kicked out as we speak. What yeah. what they thought was yeah, that oh white well, Latin, <laughs> yeah, what they thought was that well, Latin people are brown, so they'll just be like all the other ones, and it's that's not happening because in my estimation, this is because Latin countries have are also happen to be uh, uh, have a Christian base, and they're running the same. Everyone can see it. They're running the same route that like Scott Cyrus. That the Italians, that the Irish ran. Oh, you know, they they, yeah. they they do the boxing. They do a little organized crime. The grandkids, I mean, their children know both the languages. Maybe their grandchildren, great grandchildren, only know English. You see it. We all we've seen the story many times. They're going to be the same thing as everyone else. They're going to have the same pressures from outside immigration as everyone else. I, I want to be pedantic for a second because like you said something that I didn't. I never thought about before. But like you, you know, Ethiopians a bad example because like I was thinking Ethiopians. Like you don't hear about Ethiopians not integrating into into, but you do hear about Somalians not em- integrating. Like, that's that what I meant. Is, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. But, yeah, no, no. Like, I Ethiopians never about this. are Christian. Damn it. Yeah, they're you're next, right. Exactly. They're next door, and you never hear problems with Ethiopians in America. You hear about some like, but like, yeah, that because they integrate because like they are Christian. They integrate. I never thought about. I that apologize to the Ethiopian brothers, especially the <laughs> those. Uh, they do awesome like uh, martial arts and stuff. Yeah, they are. They are. Really Celeste. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually, when I lived in Silver Spring, Maryland, there was a lot of Ethiopians there. I really liked their food, and I um, got to learn about Ethiopian culture there. But yeah, I'm originally from Venezuela, and I came to the States like when I was like seven-ish. But um, yeah, Hispanic Coalition is interesting because you are seeing some generational gaps because of the fact that like when you look at like, Tejanos in South Texas, they've been here I'd dare say since a good portion, they can trace their ancestry to like the 17th century when the Spanish settled down. And they have a very distinct identity from, say, a Mexican immigrant that came after the passage of Hart Cellar in 1965. But with Tejanos, those guys are basically like the West Virginians of Hispanics. And then you have the typical Cuban, which comes from like a really different like ideological backdrop and like South Florida Hispanics, that's like a really different milieu. Like you're basically assimilating to a kind of like pan-Caribbean Hispanic culture that tends to be pretty like right-leaning. Though Cuban Hispanics, the Cuban Republicans tend to have like very like chamber of commerce, pro-Zionist type of views that are like your typical Republican. But when you look at like Hispanic views on immigration, this is where things get very nuanced because contrary to what like Telemundo, Univision, and even like just general corporate media says, there's a strong Cesar Chavez tradition within the Hispanic community to be very skeptical of immigration. And in fact, when this whole like woo-flu stuff kicked off, especially the lockdowns, Hispanics were one of like the biggest groups that we're in favor of like some type of immigration moratorium because on, on labor grounds. And also you do see some kind of international beef where a lot of 
Mexican Hispanics just are not down with Central Americans who are, who are predominantly like the largest like Latin American migration wave right now that's coming to the U.S. So you have a lot of that. And I'd also add some more unsavory aspects too, because having lived in pretty rough neighborhoods, you do see forms of the kind of like street gang and even prison gang politics kickoff where Hispanics are throwing down with blacks. And this is something that a lot of people don't really report, especially the liberal press that's always talking about this rainbow coalition of stability. Because if you look at a lot of areas where Hispanics have settled down from LA to Miami, they've have like de facto ethnically cleansed and pushed a lot of like foundational black Americans, if you will, out of these areas. And there's a lot of beef there. And even like you have like organizations like the SPLC talking about this and yeah, going back to prison gangs, like there's like cases where the balance of power is so stacked in like the prisons where the, Black gangs tend to dominate that. You see the white prison gangs like packed with Hispanic prison gangs. Heck, there's like a Nazi lowrider type of like prison gang slash street gang that's like composed of those people. So you do see some cases of this like manifest itself in really weird forms. And with like the BLM stuff, you you also saw Hispanic Democrats, I think, were like the only group that wanted to see like a total crackdown of these riots. And you do see like a lot of this ethnic politics just start to like manifest itself in very, really like nasty ways. And it's like multiculturalism is kind of like, is very much a failed experiment. And I think that the more woke Democrats get, I think they will continue to bleed a lot of Hispanic support, especially for Hispanics that are like pretty settled down and already like invested. And I do think that they are kind of a working class white working class adjacent group because of the fact they do share a lot of interests. If you go, like I live in a predominantly Hispanic area and you go to the bar or whatever for whenever people watch UFC, it's packed to the brim and you see people from all like different backgrounds that share those kind of interests. And that's something that does scare these elites because their whole premise is based on building this like rainbow coalition to supposedly dispossess like historic America. And I think this is going to be like some of like the more intriguing kinds of like factional infighting that you'll see these days. And yeah, also with like Asians as well, the um, affirmative action stuff and like the labeling of them uh, of like white adjacent, I think you might see like a lot of them start to drop out of that coalition. And you do see very similar trends of like working class minorities where they're, they're like Hispanic, Asian, or whatever, that they're starting to just exit out of the system. And the thing is, too, a lot of like the type of minorities that you see that are part of like this ascendant class tend to be tend to occupy that same class status of, say, like your typical white or Jewish liberal, that they're basically just assimilating into that. Like I lit when I grew up in North Dallas, I saw this one particular like striver class type migrant that basically would do everything possible to assimilate into that upper middle class talking head uh, lifestyle or, or business class. And they generally speaking did not really care much for any type of traditions and whatnot. That I think that's something that's going to continue to play out in the foreseeable future. A, a lot of gay men in that, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever the, the sort of uh, ethnic act, Democrat activists uh, a ton of gay men. I don't know what's going on with that, but uh, yeah. 
Well, I can take a crack at explaining the the Asians being kicked out of the coalition thing because if you're going to be vulgar about it, if you're a group of people who you school like you, you you're kicking ass on the SATs, you're, you you get extremely good grades. Well, you don't need the PMC sinecures. Like you don't need the fake you don't need the, the fake HR jobs. And if demographically you're one of the like wealthier groups of people in a country, you also don't need like direct payments from the government. So like, there's nothing for the, for the, for that party to do for you anyway. It's like, why, why should you be in that coalition? They can't do anything for you. Anything that you'd ask of them would directly conflict with those other two much larger groups of people. So yeah, they're just going to get, they're going to get the boot. But there, there is some, I mean, so they're, they're still there. And I saw, I saw someone explain this. It might've been Wesley Yang or someone like that. It was like, well, why are you guys still, still part of it? And it was like, uh, even if we're just in the room while the Democrats are are divvying up the treasure, it's better than being a Republican. Uh, like, in other words, they're going to have to get kicked out. I think a lot of that may have to do with location stuff because, and this, and this is where I was going to talk about California because all that stuff about ethnic conflict, the Democrats have built is our very national party in general. This is why, I like, um, I generally like local cops, especially like uh, sheriffs and stuff, but uh, federal police, mm, I don't like that. Uh, they're going to be the opposite. They're they yeah. they want they're not they're very national thing, and uh, we, we you even see some like extreme communists. They'll say like they have a phrase: "All cops are bastards." Now there's some people that say like A C A B, uh, except the except federal cops. Those are <laughs> those are good. Ones. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now they've built this coalition by basically saying like, okay, it's everybody in the world versus white men. And that, that's what we're going to do. So even including, including women. So, uh, you know, white women, all black people, all Asian people, blah, blah, blah. Which, uh, okay, I guess. Uh, of course, anyone. But this this is going to get very silly in California, where you have places where there's going to be a ton of ethnic conflict, and there's going to be very few whitey around. So you end up with these things where they literally have California politicians are like, you know, hey, the reason why, you know, we're shutting off your power here in Oakland is like it's some some asshole white guy in Alabama. He's the one doing it. Like <laughs> but you know, everything here you you essentially have a one party like you have a one party state there. They control everything and even in a lot of places there's no white people around. So like you guys are going to have to like take this seriously. Now, the thing is like so we talk about ethnic machine politics all the time and I think that people like if you have no interest in this, because there's, I mean, there's a record of this. So, so this is a this is a thing that happens all the time in politics. You can look at the record and say Lebanon and Indonesia. Like, you met, like, I, I'm surprised no, very few other people are interested in this kind of, like, dynamic of how this thing works. Uh, it's kind of, like, one of the funniest things. So, like, they do anything they can to sort of, like, inflame racial conflict. Like, that's, it's like, it's like a win for them. It, it's, it gets out the votes and stuff. You know, like in places that have actually like went through wars with this kind of thing and are trying to like people are actually trying to live in these kinds of things, they'll put you in jail for trying to inflame. Like that's like uh, that's extremely dangerous. So like in Indonesia, when like I don't know whatever their reds and blues are, but there's always some kind of red and blue. Oh yeah, by the way, another one is um, Belgium. Belgium has a long history of this this sort of thing. Uh, of course, Ireland and stuff. Like uh, so, each side they'll have some parade. Uh, once a year where they remember, and this is true for all of these things, where they remember like uh, when they all got beat up in a battle or something like that, right? And on that day, like if you're on the other side, like you're not allowed to go anywhere near them. 
because they know what's going to happen. Uh, this is kind of like in, like you were talking about in prisons. I used to read the SPLC. They used to have great journalism on the prison system and all the alliances and all these things. There's intense rules on this kind of thing because if you just play around and just let people do whatever, you have all these Justice Mullet type things, like you're going to get a ton of people killed. Like this is, this you can't, you can't be doing stuff like that. Yeah, what we're seeing like in the U.S. is basically why like the whole like diversity mantra is, is weird. And uh, yeah, speaking of like um, going back to like Ethiopia, like what we're seeing now, like in their like civil war, it, it, it has like a very much like a multi-ethnic dimension. And in fact, a lot of Africa, especially like multi, these multi-ethnic nations, you are seeing a lot of these separatist movements really just kick off everywhere from like Nigeria to Ethiopia. And it's kind of like what happens in a lot of polities that are like quote unquote diverse and trying to like engineer that and manufacture that here in the US, I think it's just like a recipe for disaster. But there's like some people that are like just utterly convinced that America is exceptional and can like break these rules. But yeah. Now I wanted to shift gears to Huey Long because I think that like one of the big benefits from listening to y'all's podcast is about about like the like the many lessons people can take away from Huey Long's legacy as governor and like a U.S. senator. And I, I consider him, regardless of how much I agree with like his, some of his views and whatnot, as one of like the most like riveting political figures in American politics, like in the 20th century. What about Long makes him someone worth studying and reading about? I would say, so one thing that's weird, so one thing that's weird about Long, so Long is literally a folk hero on the Gulf Coast. So I had never read a book or saw a TV show about him. Uh, I don't know when, but he was just someone I was told about as a little kid. Everyone knew about it. We're going over the Huey Long Bridge. There's Huey Long, uh, you know, LSU. Like, you just know about him because he's essentially a folk hero. Here's an example. So here's the smallest example possible. So I've talked to people that were like uh, some kind of extreme right wing, like um, like a monarchist kind of thing, where they want something like a king. And they were telling me about how, you know, Huey Long is this left wing guy. This is all bad. And it's like, well, like, what do you think like becoming king of the United States would look like? Because th- this is exactly what it would look like. And all these things about policies and and this kind of stuff, like, it doesn't matter unless you have the power. You know, I think even in the libertarian tradition, you have something like like Hans Hoppe or whatever, where, where he kind of like figures this yeah. out. It's like you need your policies. Most of the, a lot of times your policies aren't, if you're doing things right, your policies aren't dictated by books you've read on Aristotle and stuff. This is what, it's what the people need. This is why uh, you had all these New Deal, people really, really embraced the New Deal in the South. Because they were poor as dirt. They didn't have nothing. They had nothing. They had dirt floors. They were starving to death. So any kind of relief to that was awesome. So if you were like, well, no, we can't do that because I've read this X and X book. Well, like maybe that maybe that would be true for like a philosopher talking to the stars or whatever. But like if you want to represent people as a politician, I guess you... I guess your other option would be try to like raise a small army or something and take over because otherwise this is all like, this is, this is, this is what politics is. To explain, to answer your question, you, I kind of have to go back to something that Bog Beef said earlier. And I'm kind of self plagiarizing here, but like he said that Jackson was the beginning of American populism, which is true. But like, uh, 
me he and I have talked about this before. I think Andrew Jackson was the beginning of American politics, period. I think that the the time before Jackson was prehistoric in American politics. There were there were there was like not really politics happening because this was the first time this was the first president who understood how power was going to work in the in the United States and uh, the American system. So uh if you think about what Jackson was and what he did, and, and especially what he the the evil things that he's accused of by people, and it's that oh he he was he was doing cronyism, he was uh you know, he was bribing his constituents with with you know money and fa- and favors and, and stuff like that, and it, he had this this you know coalition of, of low class cracker people. Well, oh, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say. That. I hope we're not on. We're not gonna be on Twitch. We'll get banned for saying the same word. Yeah. <laughs> no, no worries about that. <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, the, all the accusations, of, well, they all apply to Huey Long too. And like, if you want to, I wouldn't say this really, but like you could bombastically claim that like Huey Long was the end of politics in the United States. Like his death was, he was the last like real large scale po- like politician in that mold. He was the last guy trying to do that because like after him, we got the we got the brain trust, you know. We got later on the whiz kids. We got the we got the administrative state. Like FDR was establishing a new, a completely new order in the United States, and it was one that had no place for people like Long. So you can look back at Long wistfully and say this was the last time that we really had an opportunity to take a different path. Like he 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 is he's the the end of that era because everything beyond that is like like he's. The, the word used, like I love it, Kritarki. Like, like that—that's where we're going. Like, that's it. So, like, I think that's one of the reasons why he's such a compelling figure because you know he's the last of his breed, and he died—he—he he died relatively young, at the height of his power. You know, perhaps if he had become president, we could all be talking about what he did wrong or why he sold us out or whatever. But you know, he's—he was a martyr, so there's also unlimited potential that was unfulfilled. I think like those are the, the reasons why he's such a like exciting person mm. to talk about. So I, I don't think it's over, uh, especially, no, no, especially, no. especially because of what we've seen now. And uh, one thing I would say, so Huey Long and FDR were like arch, were, they were, they were arch enemies. And that doesn't make sense if you, in modern politics, because like, well, well, Jose, like, uh, like uh, it, it, that's not how things work now because people are being lied to. Now, like, you have to imagine, like, a politician is not a philosopher king. It's the job of representing interest. If you if you just sort of do things because it feels good, well, that, that's not that, that that's just that's just not politics. That, that's just not how it works. Now, a he's well, one of the most sorry. Good. Well, just I wanted to say I'm not I'm not saying that it's over. I, I uh, you know oh, it might have it, it might have seemed over when Cromwell chopped off King Charles's head, but ten years later, his son's back on the throne, and you know the business is back. Like we we can always we can always go back, but I'm just like yeah, it was the end of like they they did chop the king's head off. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, and that, let's just try going with it. So like okay, there's tons of nuances. To this that, like if you take a small look at it from a modern perspective, you won't get it. So here, here's like one kind of thing. So there are a lot of like Democrats that are that have pondered basically exiling Donald Trump if, from the political process, which by the way, that's something that happens all the time in world history. Uh, you know, you send, you send Napoleon to, uh, to Elba Island. What would that look like? Like on, like you would think like, well, okay, so it's the people that are against Trump. So they would just, send him away and they would just 
like in real life, when that would really happen, you would have to like surrender to like about half his demands and then get rid of him. Because that's that's really how things work. And that's basically what FDR did. FDR realized how dangerous Huey Long was to to his political career. The very first political poll in the United States history was financed by FDR to find out how popular Huey Long was. And he did it, and he was scared. Uh, so part of getting rid of him was basically uh, implementing half of the things that, that Huey Long was, was uh, going for. But, uh, I mean, so... I, I mean, I really believe that these sort of principles, they apply to becoming the manager of your company, becoming the, the, the leader on your softball team. To me, leadership is quite, it's quite universal. <laughs> yeah, Huey Long, would have been, Huey Long would have been great at whatever he tried. Caesar would have been great at whatever he tried. Does anybody think that Joe Biden would, would be a great success if he hadn't spent his entire life uh, as a politician? I mean... Well, I don't, you know, it's hard. I've seen people say that Joe Biden is is, uh, a lot more charismatic than people would think. Uh, Yeah, but that's not the point. That's the point is he he couldn't do anything. Like Huey Long could have could have gone into any field and succeeded. Yeah, as a leader, as a leader, like you know, yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. Uh, Yeah, so that doesn't mean he could be like a great scientist or whatever. But leadership, like he would have ran an awesome Marriott, you know. Yeah, yeah, that that is like an interesting way of looking at it, like the um, kind of like factionalism that took place within like the Democrat Party during the New Deal, because you you definitely saw like that New Deal technocrat brain trust types try to square off with like Huey Long's like more like populist style politics. And I think like that was like like his death was kind of like a turning point where you saw like the, the Democrat Party became like officially the party of technocracy because it's actually kind of funny when you look at the party's history, especially like even like in the Gilded Age, when you look at like a figure like Grover or Cleveland, for example, who was essentially like a non-interventionist, but like really pro-business. Like he was like basically a libertarian Democrat. Like people like him would not really fit in the modern Democrat, which is like a, a really militarily hawkish party but like in a weird way because they love like using color revolutions and other subversive ways to to flex u.s like hegemony but like they're they're absolutely obsessed with technocracy they basically apply the social engineering they do domestically to abroad and it's like it's a very different party and in many respects like the republican party now has de facto like taken on that legacy, though grudgingly, because you're still seeing that the coalitions sort themselves out and also the internal squabbles that I think won't be settled until like the late 2020s as like they figure out who will be like their new House leaders and senators. But it is fascinating to see, uh, to say the least, because we are seeing those same political realignments that our history books talk about actually happening in real time. Now, I just wanted to like cap off like the discussion just more about like the future of the U.S. because you're starting to see a lot more people talk about this now in a way that I never really heard before. And this is not just like on the right, but also on the left, because you're definitely seeing much more pessimistic takes on where America is heading. And one thing I like about one of your guests, Tink Sorg, is how he thinks things are heading towards chaos 
And I might actually become more partial to his belief after like listening to his sh- uh, to his appearances and also reading some of his content. What are y'all's like overall view of where the U.S. is heading in like the next decade or so? Uh, by the way, <laughs> so we call him Tink Zorg, and we call him Tink Zorg on the show, and I think we we're going to keep doing that just out of habit. But he is, in fact, Malcolm Sheyun. He's very well published. Uh, he is, I, I think he's like, uh, he's on the, he's on the, the, whatever they call the masthead or whatever at American Affairs. He definitely has a column in Unheard. Uh, he was published in the Daily Mail like a month yeah. ago. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 he's uh, he's brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, the, 100%. The question was, do we, do we what do we think is going to happen in, in, in America in the next 10 years? Is that? Yeah, more or less like the future. Like, do you share like his beliefs more or less? I I, I hate prognosticating like that. I, I I so I'll be I'll be a wimp about it and say like I, I I do agree with the fundamentals of what he says. Like he explained to to, to us better than anyone had before. Of like how important this stuff is as a jobs program. Like he laid it out, he laid it out in detail, which he kind of understood because of his work in, in Swedish politics. So like, I, I, he's right about this. Like you have a problem where you have too many people who want to, who are aspiring to be managers and not like there are too many chiefs and not enough Indians way the old expression goes. And obviously we're having problems with supply chain. Like the military is, is, definitely less effective than it used to be you have you have a, this, this slow breakdown in in like all of our institutions and i do and i once again i completely agree with what he thinks about that however i couldn't say if it's going to be 10 years from now or if it's going to be 100 because it's impossible to know that if, you know as far as his like his doomer pred, uh, predictions go i mean that will come true eventually but you know we're a country that's we don't we don't have a land but we don't have a border with any of our enemies we have nuclear bombs we have a lot of natural resources we have you know an ocean on each side of our country like this party could go on a lot, very long time so I, I don't co-sign that like in the next 10 years this will happen although it definitely could because these collapse narratives tend to surprise people like in history like People are people are shocked at how quickly things break down. I think that the most important thing that Malcolm talks about, and also like he's written some, he's written an article or two about this. I think one with our friend Marty McMarty, is that like this is a problem of complexity. Like these systems are too complex, and some somebody has to come through and you know tear out the guts of them and simplify them so that we can we can we can stop devoting outsized resources to like, you know, (laughs) HR. Like, and I think he's, he's definitely right about that. And we're already seeing, we're already seeing political movements that are like kind of making those demands already. So I I wouldn't bet against him, but I I really, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm too much of a, I'm too much of a pussy to to say, yes, we'll definitely, or we definitely won't see this happen. Yeah. So uh, as far as the macro stuff, so, a lot of the big questions are just not my specialty. And you know, I'm not passing that buck, but like, I would not like a lot, like, you know, a question which may, maybe, you know, because uh, I know uh, libertarians think about this kind of stuff all the time. But like, uh, one of the things that keeps the party, the, the party going so long is going to be the dollar. Because uh, uh, everything changed. Uh, yeah, that, I agreed about that. Big, yeah. And, and, and there's, and 
I, I am absolutely not in that because I know there's all these things about the oil and, you know, Swift and all this stuff that, that really matter about the dollar. And libertarians are your guys on that, which is a big thing. Now, um, we've seen his, his predictions. Uh, if you really listen to the things that he says about, like, say, the supply chain and stuff, which um, we've seen all these, like, from the outside, it doesn't really, like, uh, they just... We've seen articles saying, well, they're going to use this technology and that technology to, uh, you know, fix, fix the ports. They're going to do this and do that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he's yeah. just saying, like, it doesn't really matter what they do because the problem is the certain kind of trucker and they're an owner-operator thing. So none of this matters. And there's no one – and they're not represented at all in politics. And so they, they're getting – they're getting just destroyed and that has nothing like you can make every single person at the port paid like a million dollars. You can spend a zillion dollars in the port. It doesn't matter because the way the system is set up, uh, we're seeing this and you know, uh, his comments about the military, we just saw today the military's unveiled, uh, maternity, uh, uh combat uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like what, like, what do you, well, I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, I tend to be of the view, um, actually, like of that's aligns with like a lot of like what Merrick said because I do see like the U.S. is very geopolitically secure in this in the sense it has like overwhelming nuclear deterrence and like two moats in the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean that really do prevent any type of like direct. Attack and it has like no peer competitors like bordering it. It's very secure, though. I do ascribe to that theory of like elite overproduction that you're really starting to see manifest itself now with just like too many aspiring elites and too few spots to fill. And that kind of stuff, when you see that, you'll see a lot of internal squabbling. And and I think if, if inflation becomes like a fixture of like the American political economy. There is going to be like a generalized decline in standard of living. I I mostly expect, I think in the next like few decades, see like somewhat of a cultural collapse and gradual economic decline. But I I don't think you're going to see like a total like Soviet style implosion. I think it's just going to slow roll, but it, it is going to be kind of a rude awakening for a lot of people who have been like normally accustomed to like the previous eras of like seemingly nonstop growth. But I think that this entire scam could go on for a bit, but there's going to be fissures within it for sure. I, I, I actually like, if you read a lot of even like neoliberals from like the Fukuyama types, all those end of history, proponents they've gotten slightly more jaded as well and they're probably going to try to drum up some dumb great power conflict with russia or china or whatever to try to like unify people and that's actually i've read like financial times pieces where people have like literally have advocated for that to create some type of like ersatz like nationalism but it sounds goofy to me but yeah i um i think things will get a bit more unstable, but I think that really to me for like the dollar supremacy thing, if like somehow like Russia, China packed together, which they already are increasingly packed together and create like some like separate defense and economic architecture, you could see that accelerate, but there's just so many moving parts out there that I tend to think that U S will still 
remain like hegemonic and yeah things on the background will be bad but i don't think we'll be bad enough to like implode it but i I do think we will see like every ensuing decade some type of like moral panic or like social breakdown kick off and then it just like piles on and piles on until like the system just withers away but who knows how long that lasts because i'm not much of a prognosticator i i just want to get like people's perspective on this because i talk to a lot of people on the right and left and you do see forms of pessimism though they manifest themselves in different ways i saw people crit- like, after we've had malcolm on our show and he'll you know he'll he'll do what they call you know do his doomerism i've seen people make criticisms of what he said and like their criticisms boil down to essentially if they think that what he says is impossible then that means either a they think that the you know the the Permanent, the, the growth is permanent. It's never going to. It's never going to slow down. It's never going to stop. We like we have reached the end of history. America will break the civilizational cycle and will go on forever. Which is that's that's a, that's a, a bold thing that to, to believe. Or you think that the growth isn't permanent. However, they're going to paper over the problems by just like continuing to feed this this like you know feed this bloated HR apparatus, and then the regular people will become poor and have. You know, more miserable lives, but they'll just have to put up with it. Either, I guess, in their minds, because like the like you know, the, the police will hit you with a truncheon or something like that. I, I don't I don't see that happening. Like eventually, there's going to be a problem where there's not going to be enough to go around. But like the good news here is, is that because America is in the position that we were just talked about, you know, we have all these beneficial aspects of, of where we live and who we are we could turn this around tomorrow and you really you probably wouldn't even need like bold like you know bold changes to the constitution or anything you could probably within this framework someone would come along and just you know s- s- you know s- cut away the fat and re like reorganize the country in a, in a, in a, in a way that might not even be as is uh a stark a difference as it was in in, you know, in the 30s like it, it could happen and like that that's probably more likely to happen than a complete collapse or, you know, the uh, libtopia or whatever we're supposed to believe is going to happen now that history is is over. I got a couple things here. So uh, uh, number one, with the end of history stuff, just this is just a quick thing. It's interesting that like uh, in like the the left liberal mind, like I, you've seen a lot of people like uh, Donald Trump basically ended was like the end of history. Uh, there was like they had a uh, like a story of how the world was going to develop, and Donald Trump ended that. Which is uh, I don't have much to say about that. But it's just kind of funny. There's lots of quotes where you can see that. Uh, yeah. Okay, number two. Uh, so we've seen this before. We know exactly what this looks. This is, and this this is kind of gloomy in itself. So uh, you everyone knows what the United States is like in the fifties and sixties, and uh, all of a sudden, nineteen seventy one, you have the gas crisis. And then you have, we get off the gold standard and you can look at what your life is like as an American from before that point and afterwards, and it's way worse. Now, on that slope, that slope that I'm talking about there, which is just the the continual downslope since uh, 1973, sort of anywhere between, because 71 Somewhere in the middle of 71 was when the gas crisis happened. So things were bad then. And then 73, it just it got worse. And then, uh, so that slope there, that is the happy slope that we're talking about. That now, we're going to drop further off that one. 
so that uh, like whatever happens, uh, that's that's most likely happened. So of course, you know the <laughs> yeah. But going back to what things that that sort of the regime has going for them, well, like one of the things was something that I heard uh, Peter Thiel mention, which is one of the it's this is just very well. I'll just say it. So uh, you know, China is the high, is the high growth place, right? They're building all the factories, they're building all the institutions. And America is the empire in decline. So everyone knows that. Okay, like Chinese peasants invest their money in like uh, low-earning American bonds, further propping like uh, that's what like is no matter like even though America is not doing well, it seems like no one else is even is there's not even a uh, anyone doing better in terms of where people want to trust their money. They all want to still put their money in America, which. Uh, that's going, I guess, it's going for the regime. I don't know what to make of that, but isn't that bizarre? Like, wouldn't the big profits be in China? Well, apparently they're not. Yeah, the China question is pretty intriguing as well because that was actually part of my focus in, when I was in university, especially like East Asian history. And a lot of respects, its rise has been facilitated by like American hegemony in the sense that like it was China was one of the countries that benefited from the outcome of World War II and also just the like of like U.S. naval power to secure shipping lanes across there and also the fact that the U.S. opened up all its trade to China in many respects China does need the U.S. at the moment that calculation could change though in 30 to 40 years, especially if China is able to get its like Belt and Road and its like String of Pearl initiatives and just like overall like Eurasian security and economic architecture set up. But like in many respects, like right now, the U.S. is in a pretty strong position, at least like in the macro sense. Now, when you start going in the internal sense, like as you mentioned, Bog Beef, uh, yet there is like oh, there are a lot of problems, but I don't know that I. I'm not in the business of the crystal ball stuff. I think what what Tingsorg does is the best thing to do because I can't walk around this country thinking about uh, shooting people or their explosions or <laughs> tanks firing on America. <laughs> so that can't enter my mind. But this is why someone who's not here, who is just speaking metrics, they're just saying this is happening and that's going to happen. I think that's probably more. I think that's probably more trustworthy. Now, you know, Roman Empire had who's I can't think of the Vespasian was he the one that consolidated the empire and sort of a. I mean, he got he got several hundred more years out of it by uh, drawing it back, making a lot of compromises and stuff, and kept the thing going uh, much longer. But yeah, well, I think this is a good place to bring the episode to a close, but. I like to say I had a great time chatting with you guys. I genuinely believe you guys bring a fresh perspective to politics and economics that you won't find in many parts of the internet. But yeah, and I definitely do not regret whatsoever of subscribing to y'all's content because it's it's always fire. And especially when you bring Malcolm and um, Fredo on. But yeah, anyways, where can my listeners follow y'all and stay up to date on your latest content? Well, uh, you can hit us up on, on Patreon. It's uh, good old boys with a Z on patreon.com. Uh, we're, we're also on Twitter, God help us, 
And we, we do we stream every Tuesday. We stream on Twitch as well. So we're getting that Sigma grind set out. Yeah, that's G O O D O L B O Y Z. And uh, this is a lot because things are so um, partisan stuff these days. It's not like we're not, it's not like we're like, oh, this is down the middle. But, you know, people are like, well, you sell your podcast to people that are Democrats and Republicans or left and right. I'm like, yeah, well, I, I'm not stupid. Of course I do. <laughs> like Michael Jordan said, <laughs> Republicans buy shoes too, right? Is it Democrat? Yeah. I, I think that we're probably, I, we're probably, we, we definitely are more on the conservative side, but like we are people who are like socialists listening to our podcast and that's good because uh, A, it means we say something, we're saying something that resonates with them and, you know, B, they, they tend to, you know, have better jobs than people like us. <laughs> yeah, or it just, or at least, uh, I mean, I would never like openly insult these people, and uh, I, I do think we uh, we do provide entertainment uh, as well. So yeah, I gotta say, I gotta say before we go, El Nino, it's an amazing name for your show, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we might as well take advantage of that Latinx privilege. <laughs> but yeah. I absolutely had a great time, man. I'm looking forward to y'all's future episodes. You guys bring in some interesting people to talk about, and you guys have opened up um, my perspectives on things, especially on like patronage and other stuff like that. Thank you. Thanks for listening, man. Yeah, no problem. Well, that will do it for today, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of El Nino Speaks, and El Nino has spoken.